Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me across this great country of ours, and indeed my heart, is my good friend and colleague, there we go, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hello, Rich. It's a pleasure to be on, as always. I would expect nothing less, uh, so thank you for saying so. Uh, you have met my very humble expectations. Tom, let's let's run down some of the greatest hits of the Gestalt IT rundown, right? We have the Qualcomm Broadcom merger, right? Probably number right. our number one hit, right? Uh, number two on there, I think, has to be the the whole kerfuffle around Meltdown, around Spectre. Mm-hmm. That's all behind us. That's all in the past. Oh no, wait! Microsoft and Google disclosed the speculative store bypass in parentheses variant four. Uh, that would allow similar speculative execution to protected kernel code. Uh, Intel, however, in this case, is already uh, kind of on the ball by disclosing this. They already have patches kind of ready to go and are out there and testing to OEMs. So they should be hitting consumers relatively quickly. But similar to Meltdown, the performance impact would be about 2 to 8% uh, for patch systems, depending on your workload and how much they're hitting the kernel. Uh, OEMs uh, seem to have indicated that this will be off by default for consumers, uh, forcing them to go into the firmware settings and kind of choose whether they want to enable or not, aka secure or, you know, get those extra two frames uh, when you're playing Minecraft or something like that. Tom, which would you choose? Um, I don't play Minecraft, so whatever the other one was. <laughs> uh, you know, this this is one of those things that cannot be understated enough. When you have an exploit that hits at the CPU level, you will constantly be fighting back against this. I remember a couple of years ago, Intel Atom uh, CPUs had a weird issue where they would just die. Like they would just get killed. And we didn't know about it until certain Soho routers started shutting off for no reason. Couldn't figure out why. And as you see the cascade effect of how many of those CPUs were installed in things and how many of them need to be replaced, and those devices have to be RMA. They cannot be fixed in place. Some of them could not be removed in place. Uh, there was a very proactive program to get them all, you know, hey, we're going to ship you a box. We're not going to tell you why. You just need to reinstall this new one. Um, that's what we're going to see with Spectre and Meltdown. Until we can get enough of these chips fabbed up that are not um, inherently vulnerable to these problems and get them out replaced in the world, we're going to see huge problems. And honestly, I don't think those systems are all ever going to go away completely. But in terms of how Microsoft and uh, and Google kind of went about this. I mean, this is about as close to ideal as you can get for a bad situation, right? They find out about mm-hmm. this new exploit. They already have patches on the way. They, you know, they. it seems like they're telling people in a reasonable amount of time. The only thing I'm not crazy about, I guess, I mean, we, we've talked about this before about what the actual impact for these exploits are on a consumer level, you know, um, to a certain degree, all of these exploits require you to kind of own a machine after a certain point to really take advantage of them. Now it makes it exponentially worse. Uh, you know, once someone has like improper access or something like that, but you know, is, is the OEM decision the right one to kind of have this off by default? So you're not disrupting consumer experience admittedly at the cost potentially of some security down the road. No, I I always go back and forth about this. Do you turn it off because most people are never going to be affected by it in the hopes that no one will ever figure that out? Or do you um, slow it down and then get beat up by your competitors? 
Um, it's a really tough call. I always tend to err on the side of security. Make your make your passwords long and complex. Turn on all the features that make you secure, even if it costs you a little bit of performance. But I'm in the minority. All right. Well, up next, uh, we have some interesting tests coming out from Facebook and Qualcomm. They've announced plans to field test Teragraph, a 60 gigahertz and millimeter wave uh, wireless uh, designed, uh, excuse me, uh, wireless technology designed to replace fiber to the home and businesses. Trials will begin in 2019 in uh, Budapest and Kuala Lumpur using 802.11ay wireless over 60 gigahertz, as we've established. Uh, and they're estimating that they'll be able to hit about 20 to 30 gigabits uh, per second on the connection. Tom, are, does this kind of signal, if this is successful, are the days of wires kind of to the home behind us, or is this going to be WiMAX 2.0? Um, I'm erring more on the side of WiMAX 2.0, uh, and I remember this because uh, you run 802.11ad in your house, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. No, nobody <laughs> runs AD. AD was supposed to be the short range, high bandwidth wireless protocol that was going to replace things like speaker wires. Yes. See how well that worked. I saw an article about AD the other day. I think it was in Forbes. And I literally had to do a double take and make sure that their editor didn't screw up because he thought he was talking <laughs> about AC or something. No, uh, Terragraph has been... Um, Facebook's been using it a lot in Silicon Valley, and I know this because a lot of the routing protocols that they used to build Terragraph, they uh, built into OpenR, which is a pet project to disassemble and make fun of myself, <laughs> uh, mostly because Facebook made some really dumb design decisions there. Uh, I don't see this actually being a thing, and here's the reason why. Do you know why DSL still runs over copper lines? Because they're cheap and they're a sunk cost for telcos you're not going to get a telco to upgrade to fiber or millimeter wave laser or telepathy unless you subsidize it, which let's be fair, Zuckerberg could probably do that only if he gets to sniff all the data coming out of the home or you make you regulate them into doing it, which is the fear motivator. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. So, I, but on a from a technological perspective, this uh, you know does it make sense to kind of approach this kind of fiber replacement from this model of doing very high bandwidth, short wave kind of wireless transmission? You know, I've seen designs from this. I think AT and T was testing something like this using phone lines and basically putting you know something similar to do kind of point to point uh, uh, high speed wireless. You know, and not having to dig up anything and not having to install new lines. I mean, like to me, that makes more sense than because you're right. You're absolutely right. You're not going to be able to do. Uh, uh, you know, giant infrastructure projects. No one's digging up roads because no one's going to be paying for that. It's a lot easier, theoretically, although there's a little more capital expense to, you know, put that box on the the uh, on the telephone pole and shoot that to the house or something like that. Fundamentally, though, is the financial incentive always just to try and get more out of copper? Yeah, pretty much because they it's it's what's there. And until you get client devices in the house that can accept those signals or until you're willing to get people to subsidize the cost by higher bills or something like that, that's the only way you're going to get people to adopt this technology. I might say that you'd see it maybe rolled out in some new um, neighborhoods of the future or something like that. I mean, I, there's a neighborhood just up the street from me that's touting a new Alexa-enabled smart home. Like, that's a thing now. Um, I Maybe, you know, super high speed wireless without digging up your front yard would be a good draw for people. But I don't see that really like that's I would rather have a pool when I'm buying a house, honestly. <laughs> but now now obviously like Budapest, not an emerging market by any sense. But does this make sense for companies that, you know, maybe want to build out, uh, you know, a campus uh 
you know, maybe in a developing country or something like that, they don't necessarily want to be doing large scale, uh, you know, infra infrastructure investment, although arguably I'm sure the, you know, maybe the, uh, the developing country might like that. Does this make sense from that perspective where you quickly want to deploy maybe like a, an edge campus or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, when you absolutely have to roll out a building or you have to connect a, a long range hospital or something like that and you don't own mm -hmm. the fiber. I mean, I, I dealt with a lot of municipalities back in my old job and trying to get the municipality to dig fiber was a chore at best. So I could see this working in those very specific scenarios, but I, I look at this a lot like GovCloud. There's going to be seven people in the world that are going to want this and they're going to buy it and they're going to use it until the stickers fall off. But that's about it. All right. Well, some more joint announcements uh, right here. We have the first debut of QLC Flash. Intel and Micron announced that it is now available, debuting in the Micron 5210 Ion Series Enterprise uh, SATA SSD. Now, uh, the kind of the the uh, the benefit and the rub of QLC is that it has a 33% capacity boost over TLC flash. Uh, uh, however, that comes at the cost of reduced endurance and uh, theoretical write speeds. Uh, Micron claims the 5210 can hit comparable speeds to TLC uh, based on their previous 5200 series drives. Uh, but they recommend, while the, the fear initially was that these kind of drives would be write once, read many uh, kind of situations uh, to get the maximum amount of endurance out of them. Uh, it's not quite that level, but they are recommending to keep these drives at about 90% reads. Uh, so you're not going to be seeing these used for surveillance drives or probably a NAS anytime soon. Uh, the cost savings uh, don't quite look to line up to replace uh, 7200K uh, spinning drives, uh, but may be able to hit the economics to maybe out displace uh, 10K drives, because even with reduced write speeds, it's still going to be offering uh, significant speed increases over a spinning disk. Tom, are you looking forward to getting a two to eight terabyte flash drive in the near future with QLC? Yeah, I I still have some spinning rust that works for what I need to use it for. Now, maybe when I get a new machine, um, that'll be fine. I've been running my my main drive off of my desktop as an SSD for a while. You know, I feel pretty confident with the performance boost. I don't really realize how good it is until I have to go back and find something on my old drive. But when you look at the number of people that are decentralizing the large storage drives out of their PCs, putting them on a network location, doing some crazy stuff with a Drobo or a QNAS or Synology or something like that, Okay, maybe it makes a little bit more sense there when it's just, you know, I'm going to read I'm going to read Plex movies off or something like that. But I mean, QLC, we're already talking, you know, we were talking about QLC years ago as the successor. It's here now. We're already moving on probably in the design phase to Quinn LC or whatever we're going to call it, 5LC, Gen 5, whatever. <laughs> um, but the important thing to realize is Look at the media consumption models. Um, most people are putting large files out there, storing them forever, and reading off of them. That's there. You build, for, you optimize for what people are doing now, and I see that being the future, at least for the foreseeable couple weeks. Well, and especially in the enterprise where you can kind of put these in situations where the workloads are going to really apply to them. And obviously they're going to hit them with, you know, they're going to have a three-year warranty and say you can do so many writes and so many reads or whatever, and you get this much endurance mm -hmm. and it'll die the second that warranty is over once you've hit that envelope. Um, but I mean, at least that will be predictable and you'll be able to get the benefit of that increased performance. It does make me wonder though, because you mentioned, you know, kind of, you know, what's the next gen? Is it going to be five layer or whatever? Are you going to have five bits per uh, per uh, flash cell or, or whatnot, you know, each time you do that, though, that decreases the capacity you're gaining, but you still 
are not exponentially, but you're still losing significant endurance and write performance for increasingly less capacity kind of as you go on. It does make me wonder if, not that Flash needs to be re-architected, but basically the reason that it gets muddy like this is because kind of the voltage difference between whether uh, when you had single bits in, in each Flash uh, cell the, the voltage difference between a one and a zero, that absolute difference is the same in QLC where now you're doing four bits and it becomes, you know, at each time you do a write, it becomes a little bit, uh, there's a little bit more, uh, it becomes harder and harder to read that cell basically. And after a certain point, it becomes, you're not able to be, uh, distinguish meaningfully, uh, you know, what's exactly in the cell. It does make me wonder is if there's going to be, you know, some fundamental engineering and standards that have to come out to really allow this to increase, you know, beyond, you know, because right now, I mean, they were saying like, you know, you're, you're talking about a thousand writes and a cell in QLC and you can no longer basically read from it at that point. Um, yeah. So, you know, a, a thousand write limit, if you go, you know, to five layer or whatever you want to, you ever want to call it, it does seem like uh, that becomes problematic within this given schema. I don't know what the standards bodies are doing or, or what the hard drive manufacturers are doing. They have some smart people from what I understand. So I'm sure there's there's a way forward on this. Uh, it does seem though that, uh, yeah, like the, I, the dream of kind of replacing spinning disc altogether with flash, even with this increased capacity, isn't quite there yet. Yeah, for those of you who are having trouble visualizing exactly what this means at home and you're a car person, think of the Bugatti Veyron, which is the fastest production car that's ever been made. It's capable of doing some kind of insane, like 260 miles an hour on a test track. Um, but it can't go f full out because after 20 minutes, the tires disintegrate <laughs> because the rubber that we use to make the tires cannot hold up to the high speeds. But it doesn't matter because you'll drain the gas tank in 12 minutes. So you'll never actually blow the tires out completely. So that's basically what we've got right now is we've got this this um, this system flash with a huge performance envelope. The sky's the limit. We're blowing it up, though, because as we're trying to get to capacity, we're wearing it out way too fast. So think of those little QLC cells as the tires. The, the faster we run them, the faster they fall apart. Indeed, it all falls apart after a while. Something that may lead uh, to everything falling apart is AR entering into the Microsoft uh, uh, landscape. Now, Microsoft obviously is very bullish on mixed reality as they're calling it or whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought this was very interesting that Microsoft announced uh, that uh, a preview of SharePoint Spaces, a mixed reality take on their collaboration and content management suite. This is gonna work uh, with their HoloLens uh, headset, which is still in testing, beta, development, whatnot, but also their mixed reality headsets, which are actually on the market and uh, Theoretically, someone is buying them. Uh, users can create content on traditional platforms, uh, so you can still use your PC to do all your SharePoint uh, intranet goodness, uh, but you can also use headsets to visualize information, use motion controls to interact with it, and other stuff like that. Uh, productivity, to me, is the absolute least sexy kind of way to use AR, but I also feel like it's it's honestly the the one of the easiest ways to sell it. And I think is going to be, you know, as opposed to something like a crazy game where, a, you know, a raptor is coming through your wall or something like that, or space aliens are killing you um, or, or those kind of applications. I, I think literally just replacing monitors in a workplace is a really compelling use case. Admittedly, not the most exciting when you're talking about, uh, you know, looking at Word docs. But Tom, are you looking forward to uh, viewing internal Excel uh, files in 360 degrees in the future? No. <laughs> but hold on, let me give you let me give you a slightly longer answer. 
No. <laughs> I mean, we were at Dell Technologies World a couple of weeks ago, Stephen Foskett and I were, and there was a literal cringe-worthy demo going on on stage. Pat Gelsinger, who's a man I know and respect in the industry, straps on a pair of VR goggles, puts on the data gloves with the controllers, and is literally balling VMs up and throwing them oh. into the cloud to that's their visualization for migrating VMs from on-premises equipment into a cloud. And I'm sitting there in the audience just doing this. I'm like, this, this will never work. Like I get it. Everybody wants a minority report computer where you can pull things down and shrink things and do stuff. But think about the way that you interact with things today. The file folder, um, skew morphism that we do with files today was invented in 1984. <laughs> 34 years ago, they came up with that idea. We've been dragging that out forever. It will only work. You know, maybe VR and AR work with object storage when we have actual objects that we can pick up, move, and do stuff with. But realistically speaking, the last place I want to see Excel is three inches from my eyeballs, 80-inch visual screen, and as I move my head, the numbers like do this parallax thing. I will probably vomit all over my real spreadsheets. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is they just need to change the UI, the interface that, or the, the actual uh, hardware that we interact with AR with, and the fundamental way that we conceptualize computing for this to work. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so you know, two three years. Okay, uh, that seems that's yeah. I, I like to me, I I am fascinated by the idea that you wear your monitor. I mean, it sounds like hell. Like when we're talking about like you can't get away from your phone and stuff like that, and seeing bulky, terrible VR slash AR goggles. I mean, the Hololens is amazingly cool, but it looks like the dorkiest pair of sunglasses ever. It looks like those you know ones that go over your big giant eighties glasses that they sell at Walgreens mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so you, you need to get it down to the point where it's literally just a pair of like not even a pair of safety glasses. It has to be something that you wear that it's no big deal uh, for it to ever work. And I, I just don't know if we get there. Like what's the, what's the, the time what we get there. I mean, people are already talking about, you know, having some sort of AR in contact lenses and stuff like that. Um, I, first of all, you, you're immediately going to get eye cancer. I just want to reiterate this, but Second of all, I, we just that that seems science fiction -y to me, and technology moves incredibly fast. That seems completely science fiction. -y. But Tom, to your point, yeah, I, I think forcing existing paradigms onto that is just going to make like it's just going to be like, well, this already works better, you know. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like if we invented a touchscreen, but uh, like the first te attempts at touchscreens where it was literally just emulating like mouse clicks and stuff like that. And we, we didn't really optimize for any, you know, for pinching and zooming. And, and that was, you know, one of the big innovations of the iPhone was, was kind of shifting that, uh, that kind of conceptualization of that UI. It's so much more with AR, you know, it's not enough just to have a light pen and be able to like point at something. Right. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to try to track an existing workflow and work, visualization and put it onto a new technology and piss people off for the next three or four years. I'm pretty sure that Scott Forrestal is still looking for a job. <laughs> well, and, and to Microsoft's credit though, they're putting this stuff out in preview. They've had HoloLens, which I would say as a product 
that they theoretically could sell. They could Google Glass this and sell it for $1,000 and, and put it in the Microsoft store. And they don't, right? They're, they're trying to build up that developer support to actually find innovative use cases. I, uh, I used to work at Case Western Reserve University, and they were one of the, the partners initially um, actually doing some really interesting stuff with like anatomy classes and that kind of stuff with AR. That to me, like education use cases, it seems to me might be interesting. Again, though, it's it's still Wild West, it's still so early days. And I'm I'm glad that Microsoft isn't isn't pushing this to production or or pushing this on consumers uh far too early. Still, though, it's only a matter of time uh before, yeah, we have like Microsoft Office mixed reality or something terrible like that. Yeah. All right, and Tom, finally, real quick here, uh, this was kind of pertinent based on some uh, Tech Field Day uh, presentations that we had seen uh, last year and maybe early this year, and that's that Dell EMC is trying to really clarify their storage story in the mid-range. Now, they recently kind of reclassified all of their high-end storage under the PowerMax line. This is for your super high-end uh, mainframe, super high availability, you know, incredible IOPS, also super expensive. Uh, their mid-range stuff where we're talking about extreme IO, scale IO, uh, uh, Unity, is that their other one? Uh, is, you know, it, it, it was a mishmash of uh, of overlapping markets and and other stuff. And now uh, the register is reporting that these will all, uh, that specifically extreme IO and scale IO are going to be merged together as part of a general simplifications of their storage offerings. This is what they're telling uh, channel partners right now and kind of trying to align that. The plans aren't set in stone from everything that we're seeing, uh, but it seems like they're taking steps to make this less of a mess. I know that was one of the, uh, you know, that was some of the feedback that we heard uh from our videos uh, that we posted on that at Tech Field Day uh, uh, YouTube page, um, but Tom, is this is this just a delayed uh, side effect of you know obviously the the Dell EMC merger, um, or you know is is this uh, you know maybe Dell EMC kind of you know, cutting a little weight and you know trying to be a leaner organization? <laughs> My watch says it's about time. This is the biggest problem that EMC has had for so long between trying to develop their own stuff internally, between buying the people like they were buying alpha startups. These people didn't even have a product. It was five guys sitting around a table waxing intellectual about software defined storage. They got bought. What this is, is this is Dell's attempt to make a marketable stuff out of everything that EMC had. EMC had a real bad habit of going in and pitching, you know, well, you don't like scale, we'll do extreme. You don't like extreme, do Viper. They couldn't get the story right. Now, okay, I'll be I'll be completely fair. EMC was the 850-pound gorilla in the storage space. They had a lot of customers, but they also had a lot of confused customers too. So Dell's doing the right thing. Dell's doing what they should have done a long time ago, which is let's go down, let's slim the product lines down, let's look where the synergies can happen. This is a Jeffrey Immelt moment from GE. There's some synergy here that we can make happen while at the same time reducing the number of things in the Dell EMC wish book that we mail out to people all the time. So when they sit down and they go, okay, I want you to tell me what my storage unit should be for this workload, there's one answer. And the only answer that they need because guess what? If you're going to pitch four different storage units at somebody or four different storage solutions, I'm just as likely to go buy from somebody else who has a more cohesive story. It is amazing to me, and I, I maybe took this for granted uh, before I started for Gestalt IT, that narrative is so important in these kind of things, it's not just about, uh, you know, having interesting technology and it's not even, it's not even about like that it's applicable to you. It's being like, 
being able to like fill the gap in and, and, and tell the story about how this, you know, how this makes business problem go away, like plug this in storage, good, cheap, here you go. Or what, you know, whatever your needs are. It's super interesting. And, uh, and we'll see if uh, Dell EMC is successful. Really interesting article from the register today up today. So uh, check that out uh, as well. And we have that in our show notes. That just about does it for the Gestalt IT rundown. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Uh, where can people find more of your great stuff? The short version, if you like the snarky Twitter feed, that's Networking Nerd. If you like the writing, that's networkingnerd.net. If you like the more analytical side of the writing, head over to gestaltit.com and search for Tom Hollingsworth. Make sure to mark him as your favorite author so you'll see whenever I post things. You can just say subscribe to the Gestalt IT RSS feed and then you'll you'll get everything by other people that write on the site too, Tom. Um, I also write on gestaltit.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology. Uh, and also uh, you might want to check out uh, right now, Stephen Foskett is just finishing up uh, doing a live blog from Pure Accelerate. So you can check that out. It's on the homepage of gestaltit.com. We're also tweeting out links to that and you can run through and he'll get you caught up on basically all the announcements uh, without having to watch uh, a two hour keynote. Uh, which should be pretty cool. Some uh, some interesting stuff on tap from Pure Storage. Uh, so check that out. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, thereabouts, live on Facebook. And you can find it later on the tweets, or not on the tweets, on the YouTubes. I get my things confused. I'm a millennial. I don't know these things. Snapchat? I don't know. All right. So until next time we meet, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day. <laughs>